Hey everyone, this is Kavain the Christian. Today we're going to finish up the series on prayer. Before we get into that, I want to say a few things. First of all, if you are in a financially good situation and have not yet become a patron, I would encourage you to consider becoming a patron. I've just uploaded a one-hour discussion of the unity of the Pentateuch and a review of John Salehammer's The Meaning of the Pentateuch, which was a very influential book in shaping my own views on the unity of the Bible. Also, I'm very excited to tell you that tomorrow, that is, or rather today, uh, uh, today, Saturday, August 7th, at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Ubi Petrus's channel, there will be a roundtable discussion with my friend Ben and with Suan on the biblical implications for the Roman primacy. Uh, ben uh, has been struggling with some illness, so it may just be myself and Suan. Uh, but later that evening at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hosted on Sam Shamoon's channel, I will be having a debate on the biblical doctrine of justification and whether the basis for our justification is the imputation of Christ's active obedience or whether justification is constituted by our ontological transformation into the likeness of God through Jesus Christ. So I'm very excited about that and if you are able I would encourage you to come watch it live. If you're not able to see it live of course both will be uploaded I think on Ubi's channel you will have to become a patron, but he produces very good content. But you have to be a patron to see the full thing. On Sam's channel, I think you will be able to watch the full debate uh, after the fact uh, completely free. So with all of that said, let's get into the content of this video. Uh, if you have not seen the previous installments of this series on prayer, I would encourage you to listen to those uh, first. Uh, so, with all of that said, let's get started. The accomplishment of Christ is brought into the world through the heavenly liturgy. This is the essence of the Eucharist, as Jesus taught us. Do this as my memorial, or do this in remembrance of me. Jesus takes this creation and joins it with his body and blood. How is it that when a young Jewish prophet and his closest students celebrate a quiet Passover Seder in an obscure upper room in Jerusalem, that this event is the glorious regathering of Israel and the nations into the redeemed Zion? It is because here, it is here that the eternal word and mind of God remembers the future. And for God, who actually makes reality by remembering it, that means everything. This is what the Divine Liturgy is all about. The Divine Liturgy is the Church's holiest work because it is the Liturgy which gathers all the fragmented bits of creation into the incarnate Word of God. The Liturgy is the supreme example of a covenantal pattern appearing throughout the Torah and the Prophets, and that pattern is followed very closely. In Leviticus 1 we have the Ascension Offering, where the worshipper enters into the sanctified presence of God. This is the little entrance, the moment when the priest originally entered the altar. In Leviticus 2, we have the tribute offering. The tribute is made up of sacramental bread and wine. It is called the offering of remembrance because it is so closely linked to Passover. It is meant to be the regular form of entering into the life of Passover throughout the year. A tribute means a representative portion of what we have produced in the world by our work. We go out, into, we go out to work in creation and we shape and mold things into new things. 
We take a slice of that and give it to God with thanks, recognizing that he gave us the raw material and the tools by which we brought it into being. In Leviticus 2, this is bread. After the entrance into the land, wine is added. This corresponds to the great entrance. Think of what happens during the great entrance. Consider the nave to be the cosmos and the altar to be the heavenly throne room. What we witness is the liturgical ascent of the church into the direct presence of God and into his throne through Christ. It is during this ascent, then, that we are engaged in sacramental memory of what we wish to bring into the presence of God. We remember the whole church, gathering the entirety of the one church of Christ into our midst. We remember the living, whose names are written on the diptychs. Thus, with the gifts of bread and wine, we join named persons and put them on the altar of God. And we remember those departed in the Lord, sharing with God the glory of their redemption, and bearing public, public witness that, to the descent of Christ into the grave. This may be controversial, and I'm not interested in engaging the comments on it now. It presumes the intermediate state, or quote-unquote purgatory, according to its orthodox interpretation, namely the purging of the departed soul from its uh, remaining impurities, which is a stay in the grave or shale before entering in the presence of God. But this is a visible expression of the church as the body of him who descended into Hades. We, in all things, redeem after the model of his redemption. So by attaching the names of those reposed into the gifts, we embody spiritually the souls of those who are yet to be brought into the counsel of God, and we consecrate them on God's heavenly altar by the act of our corporate memory as the church, the body of Christ. It is after the gifts are placed on the altar. I have skipped the biblical correspondence to the reading of the gospel slash epistle and the sermon, but both are present in this pattern, and transfigured into the body and blood of Christ that we join our own work to it. The tribute of Leviticus 2 corresponded to the construction of the holy place in Exodus 25 by the hearts of Israel. Israel gave what its heart moved it to give, according to Exodus 25, verse 2, and its gift was transformed into the sanctuary with its oil lights, its twelve loaves, and its incense altar. The tribute was a loaf mixed with oil and incense. Our tithe is taken specifically after the gifts have already been divinely transfigured. To accentuate the point that our participation in the redeeming work of Christ is not the making up of an intrinsic lack in the merits of Christ, but the transmission of our own work through the perfecting merit of Christ, so that we might be partners in the redemption and glorification of the world through the perfecting of our imperfection and the making up by him of all that is lacking. In tithing on top of the consecrated body and blood of Christ, we become joined to the work done through the body and blood. As Israel's gift signified in tribute was what constructed the tabernacle and ensured its continuing service, so also do our tithes further the sustenance and multiplication of the church and the kingdom of God. Indeed, the connection of Israel's hearts with the offering of the contributions appears to be the basis for lift up your heart in this very context, one of the most ubiquitous phrases found in all ancient liturgical traditions, at least all of which I am aware Finally, there is the peace offering of Leviticus 3. This is the meal shared between God and his consecrated holy people. In the Torah, this is restricted to priests who have an elevated ritual holiness. Now it is shared with all the faithful, as it is said in the liturgy, the holy things are for the holy. The divine liturgy is the perfect and supreme consummation of the dispensation of God through mankind for creation. Everything that God desires to do through man is gathered into one at the liturgy. And it is the liturgy which answers our original question. 
The ascension of man to God's presence in the liturgy is done by the Spirit, who turns us into smoke on God's holy altar. This is what begins the liturgical action in Revelation. Jesus, as the divine angel of the Lord, as he is named throughout the Old Testament, Revelation 8, verses 1-4, to casts fire from the altar on earth, fulfilling the word he spoke in the Gospel of Luke. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it was already kindled. The fire which is lit on the earth at Pentecost initiates the circuit, which will make its first round in the apostolic era. The fire descends from heaven, tur turns what is on earth into fire and smoke, ascending back into heaven and intensifying the fire which is cast back down. That circuit makes round after round in the era of the church, until the creation is wholly leavened and perfected, so that it can be finally brought into the innermost sanctuary and maximized as the mirror of God's revelation of himself, i.e. the quote-unquote second coming, or more accurately using biblical language, the total revealing. God brings all things into perfection by gathering them all into his heart, and man has been graciously constituted as the intermediary through which all things are to be gathered into the heart of God. Fulfilling that ca calling means that man must be filled with the Spirit of God, by which all things are gathered together, since from eternity the Spirit is the means of communion between the Father and the Son. Here is what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 16. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart, in the, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The thoughts of God are infinitely rich and diverse. There are an endless plenitude of specific divine beauties present to the mind of God in the Word, the Word has made a human mind his own, thereby transmitting divine thought by the Holy Spirit to human nature. It is therefore in being joined with the Messiah that we have a key to the storehouse of divine treasure, having the Holy Spirit sent into our hearts and comprehending the thoughts of God by the Spirit of God. All things are perfected when God in the Word calls a thing to mind according to its perfection and ideal. This has a complex relationship with sequential time, which is not entirely clear to me at present, so I will not address it here. It is called to his mind when the spirit who is present in it carries, carries it from the world into the word and ultimately to the Father. This is ultimately what the reign of God means. It means God's will is done in the world. It means that the ideal world, what the world ought to be, becomes by God's hand the actual world, what the world is. That is what happens when God becomes king over all the earth. And all mankind calls on him with one voice, as is described in Zechariah chapter 14. Notice how the perfection of the reign of God occurs through the unification of the human family around the name of God. This is prayer at its most divine, and it is the answer to my original question. We sometimes think of prayer 
as something like this. We desire for something to occur, whatever the thing is, and for whatever reason, and so we ask God. He either answers in the affirmative or he answers in the negative. He either brings healing to X person or he does not. Our prayer is connected to his answer because we asked. What I am suggesting is that there is a much deeper spiritual, spiritual reality underlying what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. God is co-constituted, the very structure of reality with mankind. A thing's existence is by definition dependent on God, but God has gone further and has made reality in such a way that the world's existence is actually dependent on mankind at a deep spiritual level. It is possible, and I would say it is extremely likely, that certain like things, like the collapse of the wave function through human apprehension, are expressions of this. I would point also to the data of the Global Consciousness Project, which suggests that when large portions of the human family are focused upon the same thing, it has subtle but very real effects on what we call the external world. Our interior life, our apprehension of the world, our conscious existence, these have been linked to the continuing existence of creation. We are comprehensively tied up with everything else in existence. The relationships we form with other human beings have a mysterious dimension, which joins our destinies together in profound ways. The studies done by men like Rupert Sheldrake, Dean Radin, and many others have shown that we really are able to intuit who is about to call us on the telephone at a level far beyond chance and selective memory. This is not merely a matter of forgetting all the times when you didn't think of a person before he or she called. This is a plausible prima facie explanation, but it is completely incinerated by the data, and there is a lot of data. But significantly, one's intuition is much, much more accurate when it concerns a person with whom one has developed a close personal relationship. And yet there is no correlation at all between the accuracy of the intuition and the spatial distance separating the person calling from the person guessing the identity of the caller. What prayer is, at its most exalted sense, is our being a conduit for the flow of divine blessing into the world. When the Holy Spirit is living and moving in us, our prayer itself may be the instrument of that prayer being answered. That is, when we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, as we call a friend to mind and join his fate with our own, we are never supposed to say, have mercy on him, when praying for another using the Jesus prayer. Prayer is so central to the life of the people of God and the New Covenant because prayer is what it looks like for God's original design of co-constituting the world through a glorified human race to succeed. The intentions in the heart and mind of God are perfectly apprehended by the Spirit of God, and the intentions in the hearts and mind of sanctified men are operative through the co-acting grace of the Spirit of God. This is what, of course, actually occurs under the Old Covenant to the prophets. A prophet was in the Divine Council, which is, after all, the divine, divinely constituted governing body of the world, by the indwelling Spirit of the Lord. Through this unique calling, the prophet acted as the intercessor for Israel and for the nations. Consider how the prayers of Moses are the instrument by which God preserves the people Israel according to his promise. See how the prayers of Amos in Amos 7, verse 5 and following are the instrument by which God verifies his word that his judgment is restrained. And how the prayers of Job are the divinely commanded instrument for the healing of the treasonous. Uh, the friends were three royal counselors who were after the throne, princes of the courts of the righteous King Job in chapter 42. And how Abraham's intercession was the specially announced means for the healing of Abimelech and the Philistine nation. It is not, then, that God 
merely answered a request of Abraham, but God determined that the request itself would be the instrument by which he would bring healing. All of this elucidates the meaning of Romans 8. Jesus, the great high priest, is at the right hand of God. A quotation from Psalm 110. He is interceding for us. And we are the body of this Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, who is in our hearts and who makes intercession with groanings inexpressible. Romans 8, verse 27. This groaning is the very groaning of the cosmos. 8, verse 22. Struggling toward its final redemption, as that groan is gathered up into us, who also groan, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 8, verse 23. Notice the corporate language here, a language obscured by many translations. There is one spirit who is given as indwelling spirit to the one family, the one family which groans together and struggles towards its unification and common destiny. The struggle of that one new man gathers and reunifies the shards of the fragmented cosmos until the groaning is all one. Then mankind will speak with one voice and one heart, and then shall the mind of Christ become wholly interior to the human family, drawing up the world into the divine presence. And at that point, then, in a wholly new way, shall God's word be answered. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one lip. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you will come and uh, watch the debate tomorrow.